So the title of today's sermon is, uh, What's in Your Lamp? What's in Your Lamp? It was interesting. Dominic Abbott kind of texted me out of the blue last night. Hey, Grampy, what are you preaching this week? We're getting this whole dialogue about his lamp. And uh, he's feeling really empty over there. So I took some of the stuff out of what you're going to hear today and gave it to him back and forth. We had this little dialogue, and he was greatly encouraged by, by the end of that. So I'm hoping the same this morning for all of us. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the difference between seeking only answers as opposed to seeking to ask new or different questions that Jesus has provided us with more than just a pat answer to all of our dilemmas, but has given us an opportunity to ask new questions. That means we are more than mere travelers on this journey that we call life, but we have become adventurers, explorers, seekers full of good courage on a divine quest to expand the kingdom of God and influence the world around us with the life of Christ that abides in us by his Holy Spirit. The whole idea of exploring the question as opposed to seeking easy answers has intrigued me. And I've become very intentional in utilizing the dynamic. What I've discovered is that after a certain amount of time, hanging out with Jesus, that the disciples began to do the same thing. If you look at the early chapters of the Gospels, you see Jesus doing a lot of teaching and talking, and the disciples are kind of quietly absorbing information. I mean, it's to the point that Jesus actually has to ask them questions in order to get them to express what they are thinking. But as you get towards the end of the gospel, it's a bit different. The disciples are now much more animated, much more expressive with their opinions and thoughts, not to say that they are very profound or even right with what they say. For instance, Peter rebuking Jesus about the cross uh, gets him a very strong negative response from Jesus, like, get behind me, Satan. You know, <laughs> that was what he was looking for, but... <laughs> or James and John suggesting to Jesus that they call down fire from heaven on a whole village for not receiving them properly, <clears throat> gets them a quick attitude adjustment. But I think that at some point in time, they realize that it is wiser to ask more questions of Jesus than to express their own conclusions to him. So an example of this is found in Matthew 24, and I'm going to be reading over the next few minutes, uh, verses 1 through 14. But it starts this way. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they make an observation. Jesus offers a response, an answer to an unasked question. 
They didn't ask him a question. They just said, oh, look at these buildings. Aren't they great? So they can settle for that answer and just move on, but they don't. Instead, they formulate more questions. Go on with the reading. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, one, and what will be the sign of your coming, two, and the close of the age, three? These questions are so on target to Jesus' initial answer to them back at the temple that it takes two full chapters for Jesus to finish the answer he gives. Hmm? The first part of which is a plain statement, while the rest of it is given in a series of parables, which is awesome because for us today, parables will inevitably lead to more questions. So first, the statement. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. It's his opener. See that no one leads you astray. Now, you know, traditionally when you hear something like that, maybe you think about, you know, the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or, you know, things that we're pretty familiar with. But it was very interesting this week. I, I bumped into two articles. One was in Time Magazine and it talked about a, uh, a techno church that's developing. Very interesting. Uh, what, what they're doing is they're having people express their thoughts and record them, and they're kept in files that will be securely kept, or they can choose another alternative. They can broadcast their thoughts through these big radar-type screens they have out into space. And the belief is that some alien being uh, will gather those thoughts about these individuals and maybe 50 or 500 years from now will come back to Earth with advanced technology and raise them from the dead. Listen, they have 32,000 adherents. What did Jesus say? <laughs> See that no one leads you astray. The other was an interesting uh, little blurb. Uh, in Facebook, there's this group called um, Small Church Pastors. And it's just a way of small church pastors to encourage one another. And so it's kind of across the board. There's Baptists and Pentecostals. There's a lot of vineyards. And, you know, they just, well, going through this, would you be praying for me? Or does anyone have any suggestions for this? I'm going to be sharing along these lines. And uh, this week there was one, oh, you know, really glad to find you guys and uh, to be able to plug into this. I want to tell you about our group. And he begins to describe what they do, how they gather outside in a circle around these three trees that form a perfect triangle after a ancient Buddhist tradition. And, and then they have the uh, Blessing of the Stones, which is a neo-pagan uh, rite of passage. And you know, I mean, it's getting more and more bizarre as he's explaining that he should fit into this small church pastor's dialogue. You know, so I'm thinking, wow, this is really, really weird. I mean, he's got a little bit of everything in there. So I went back last night to try to find that to clarify some of the thoughts. It's gone. <laughs> Just erased from the 
from the blog altogether. But Jesus' warning is very you know, profound for us. See that no one leads you astray. And it might not be what you think it's going to be, but something will catch, catch the eye of your mind, begin to just bring you off center. Be careful with, with that. For many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then will the end come. Now it would appear as if two things are going on here. The first being that evil and darkness are on a rampage. And in the scheme of things, it seems to me that we are at that place where lawlessness has increased, as seen by the flagrant disregard for the value of life being demonstrated by various terror groups around the world. But yet at the same time, the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, is impacting every tribe, tongue, and nation. I remember we watched a, one of those Todd White-type videos uh, a couple of months ago, and the centerpiece of this video was this worship service that they had in the middle of a Hindu temple that up to that point had been persecuting Christians. God so arranged that they were invited in by the high priest of this Hindu temple to worship in his temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Ghost was the name of the, the, the video. Yeah. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's really quite profound. Hmm? So the gospel of good news concerning Jesus Christ is impacting every tribe, tongue, and nation. The reality is that these two seemingly separate flows are one and the same thing, and it's called spiritual warfare. The kingdom of darkness is in a death throw battle against the kingdom of God. We are not on the defensive. The devil is. The devil knows his time is short and has pulled out all stops in order to accomplish as much destruction as possible before being totally defeated by Jesus as he returns in glory. Church, we are in a battle. Not for our own lives or survival. We won that when we were born again. Do you know that you entered eternal life then? Okay? This isn't something we have to strive for. You're already there. Hmm? We are in a battle for the lives of those who don't even know there's a battle raging. The lost, the oppressed, those bound by sin and darkness need men and women of good courage who know their God and are willing to do exploits, take risk, and move by faith to accomplish God's will and agenda. This is not about us, it's for them. 
The kingdom of God is at hand, and the king is about to return. Will he find us faithful doing when he comes? This is exactly what Jesus asked at the end of the plain statement part of his answer. Matthew 24, 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And there, right there, did a question just form in your mind. Because it did in mine when I read it. Doing what? Doing What? If I'm going to be found faithful doing, I have to know what I should be faithful doing. Well, that's exactly what the rest of Jesus' answer to the question is about, in parable form, which would have been a lot more meaningful to those he was speaking to at the time, as parables are contextually relevant to the times and culture that the speaker is addressing. But for us in modern 21st century America, parables raise more questions than they answer, while at the same time, they provide more opportunities to explore the word of God. The parable that I find causes the most questions in my mind in this series of parables is the five wise and the five foolish virgins. I'm going to read that. Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So my first question is, who are these women? The simple answer is that they somehow represent the church in the end times. But if Jesus is the bridegroom in this story, then he is coming back for his bride, not for a harem. But they must have a legitimate representative function or he would not have included them in such a prominent way. Some suggest they are part of the bridal party sort of the bridesmaids of today. But again, what are they doing running off with the groom? (laughs) 
and not the bride. Where is the bride anyways? Now, I want you to know that I have no intention of answering these questions for you today. <laughs> it's all a setup. <laughs> My goal is to get you to start asking questions and searching the scripture for yourself and to explore the possible application of what you find to your own life and faith. I will provide you with some historical data and some theological opinions that I've come across in my research, and then some spiritual insights that have encouraged me in my pursuit of a deeper walk with Jesus. So theologians, for the most part, agree that the parable is a picture of a traditional wedding in Jesus' time, although there is no written evidence of that anywhere. It's just an opinion they've come up with. And in fact, there are no standardized wedding ceremonies in ancient Judaism. The ceremony would be distinctly different if you were a Sadducee being married at the temple in Jerusalem, or any major city for that matter, than it would be if you were a Pharisee being married in the Galilee. And then again, any and probably every local village had its own unique distinctive based on generations of repetition not even known in other villages. I've been to three weddings in Israel. Every one of them was completely different than all the others. So what is Jesus portraying? I think the heads up is in the opening statement in Matthew 25, 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. In other words, this is a picture of what will happen upon his return. An unparalleled, never done before event. Jesus has the only record of it because it is formed in his heart, waiting to be walked out in real time at the end of time. Listen, I believe this is so unique that not even heaven has seen it yet. Listen to what he says in Luke 20, 34. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In other words, in heaven, there's no marriage. There is no example in heaven. The only place that marriage is taking place in heaven is in the heart of Jesus Christ in anticipation of embracing you for eternity. We are unique in his plan. So what is that exactly is he looking for? Number one, he's looking for a group of people who are looking for and ready for his return. The ESV translation calls them virgins. But this translation is an assumption because the Greek word is pathanos. It's of unknown origin, and it simply means a maiden. By implication, an unmarried daughter, 
and the assumption is that she's an unmarried daughter, she is a virgin. Thus, King James translated it, virgin, but it just means unmarried. Unmarried, unattached by vow or affection to any other person, cause, or kingdom other than the one they are waiting for. And although they are unattached, the second thing he is looking for is that they are in possession of two things. The first is lamps, which all ten virgins carried. And I think the scripture is pretty clear as to what the lamp is. I'm going to read you a couple of Psalms. Psalm 18, 28 through 30. For it is to you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word, your word, the word of the Lord proves true. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So he's looking for those who are unattached to the world and carrying in, in their hearts the word of the Lord. It's making sense to you? And all ten have this. The second thing they should be in possession of is oil. And at the start, all ten have lamps with oil in them. And they are all flame on. Again, the symbolism is pretty straightforward. The oil is representative of the Holy Spirit and is actually one of the biblical symbols of his activities among the people of God as the anointing. But five of these virgins have been classified as wise by Jesus because they had brought extra oil. They carried something extra with them that the foolish virgins, for whatever reason, did not possess. An extra flask of oil. Additional anointing kept in reserve. Just in case the bridegroom delayed and weariness sets in. Don't you know, weariness does set in. So how did they do that? How do you keep extra anointing in reserve? I think it would be important to know this. Don't you? Well, let me introduce you to another group of biblical characters who lived in real time and are found in the book of Acts. This is part of the record of Paul's missionary journeys and his return trip to Jerusalem as recorded by Luke, who is also the writer of the Gospel of Luke. It's Acts 21.8. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Philip is one of the original seven deacons of the church. You find that in the earlier uh, chapters of the book of Acts. He was also an evangelist who started the revival in Samaria and baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert before getting translated to another city by the Holy Spirit. This is that same Philip. But here is the thing that Luke, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, points out in Acts 21.9. This is out of the King James reading. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, unmarried, unattached, which did prophesy. Virgins, which did prophesy. Virgins, unmarried, unattached, and in the very word of God, with a rich heritage in the Holy Spirit, but their distinctive, their extra vessel, is that they prophesied. And here is the heart's desire of godly leadership in both the Old and New Testament for the people of God. Listen to Moses in Numbers 11, 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Would that all of God's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Do you remember what Peter said on the day of Pentecost? This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will keep their mouths shut. No? We'll do what? We'll prophesy. We'll prophesy. I will pour out my spirit. Can you see the symbolism of the oil being poured out? over the church, this big flask of oil being poured out, and what is the response of the church is they prophesy. Listen to Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love. The greatest is love, right? The greatest is love. Pursue love. And earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. Why? Because of the anointing oil. Listen to this story. Now, I want you to just listen. And, and out of this story, I'm not going to give too much comment on this. We're going to switch right to prayer. Ask the Lord to give you some input as you listen to this story. This is out of Second Kings 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Is that a dilemma? Hmm? Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me. What have you in the house? She said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Got a flask of oil. 
got an extra flask of oil. Now watch what he does. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said to her, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live off the rest. Wow. Wow. Do you see the transition that happened there? For the widow, she had so much anointing, she could sell it. For the unwise virgins, they lack so much, they had to go and try to buy it. What a distinction, what a difference. The prophetic flow provides an abundant supply of God's divine provision and direct access to his banqueting table. Those who had the flask went into the wedding feast. When the prophetic flows, blessings flow. When the prophetic is active, the kingdom of heaven's door is unbarred and the light of his word burns brighter up against the darkness of the night. I watched this happen this past Wednesday night, the School of Kingdom ministry class. We had watched an awesome uh, video teaching on relationships and then Eric asked uh, us to do some Some work with the prophetic. We lined all the students up facing each other. Had everyone lift their hands. And I just said, you know, I released the prophetic anointing in this place. I got to tell you, the atmosphere changed dramatically. Would you say it changed, Pat, dramatically? I mean, there was so much life and energy in this room. And the blessings of God flowed so freely. There's something available for us in the prophetic that will be as a reserve. I really believe as we give out the word, we're building up a supply of the word of God in us, an anointing that will take us through times when everyone else has scarcity, we'll have fullness. There's something about giving out that makes an investment into the heart and the spirit of a man or a woman who's in relationship with their God. And so I want to pray this morning, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the anointing for the prophetic. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to release uh, that prophetic anointing in this room. I, I sense it's already begun to happen. I sense, oh God, that your spirit is already moving. You're already speaking to the hearts and lives of, of people in this place. I ask you to increase that. Lord, we open up our empty flask before you, O oh God, as the oil is flowing, and we ask you to fill every empty place in us uh, with fresh oil of anointing. Lord, that our lamps would burn ever brighter as the world around us darkens, O oh God, as lives get more and more desperate. 
that we would have uh, the oil of gladness, that we would have the balm of Gilead for healing, that we would have the word of the Lord, O oh God, as encouragement, Lord, that, that the brightness of the light of your love would, would warm the hearts of those who have only known coldness and rejection, O oh God. Come, Holy Spirit.